Testing, testing, check, check. Thank you, Michael Edwards. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and thank you for joining me this afternoon as we discuss a debate that I did not plan to do a review of. Someone just asked me in the chat, do I plan to do a uh, debate review of, let's see, Alex Armstrong says, are you going, that's too small, uh, you're going to do a debate review on Jonathan Sheffield and Richard Carrier. Um, maybe, uh, probably, I didn't think I was going to do this one. Basically, I don't, so my goal when I do these things is not just to, and this is good for setting this up. I, I'm not just trying to cover everything that happens, but if something happens in a debate or in a discussion that I think is useful and helpful to clarify for people that might've watched and possibly could have been confused or me, if, you know, five years ago, would I have maybe took something wrong or misunderstood something or it needed a little more clarification? Then I, I try to do that because I think sometimes with these things, there's some stuff that can go over your head. And so, um, you know, you could have probably noticed or thought of these things on your own. But someone like me, who's an absolute apologetics junkie who listens to all this stuff over and over again, might pick up some, on some things. And so that's what I'm here. And that's how I serve you. Uh, this channel exists because we love atheists. We love Matt Dillahunty. We love all unbelievers. And guess what? We love believers too. But specifically, this channel at this point in time is focused on reaching atheists with a consistent, reasonable uh, position of the gospel that is defensible. And so uh, today I decided to finally do this discussion because I saw several people, even some Christians saying, you know, it, I, I, can't, I think Ray Comfort lost this thing. Now, you know, first of all, I get it. I know why you say that. I watched the same debate that you did. Um, and someone says, Anthony Rowden says, uh, whoops, uh, Anthony Rowden says, this debate was a dumpster fire. Yeah, I mean, I don't deny that. And uh, this person who I'm, whose name I would totally screw up says, my first time in Trinity Radio. Yay, we're so glad you're here, Pilo. <laughs> Probably saying that wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, so... I understand why people feel the way they do about this debate, but I actually think there's something pretty important to say about it. Something that 
changes everything that it strikes me that most people are overlooking as they're thinking this thing through. And so I think it's important to point out, and it also reveals something I think about Matt Dillahunty so, uh, and his debate approach and his thinking, because as people who have listened to this show and I've covered Matt Dillahunty before know, um, I think that he's got some problems with his epistemology that make make coming to believe in God something that his epistemology doesn't necessarily allow for. I know that he would probably disagree with that. And we've talked about it face to face on the debate stage. So don't need to go rehash all of that. But some of those items will come up as we go through this today. So without taking a whole lot of time to jump into it, let me just say, I really appreciate those of you who give super chats. That means the world to me. And I think it's for those of you that don't, we don't require anything from you financially to do this show. We'll do it anyway. And by the way, I want to let you know, uh, well, I better not announce that without Jonathan, but something really exciting is about to happen. What I can announce to you real quick, and I know some of you don't even know this show, so you're like, why is this guy droning on about announcements? But let me just say this. uh, Tomorrow, I'm going to have Chris Date of Rethinking Hell on the show with Jonathan. We're going to be talking about something super exciting to announce to all of you. And we're going to be talking specifically about the nature of the Trinity and does it make sense? So you want to be here for that. That's going to be um, a a really exciting show. Love Chris Day, clear thinker. We disagree on some things, but we agree on a lot more. And so I want you to be here for that. Um, And then Friday, Michael Jones, everyone, Inspiring Philosophy is going to be in the house and we're going to be covering a debate between Daniel Dennett and Keith Ward about consciousness, free will, and uh, uh, idealism. So um, I'm going to have Michael Jones on and we're going to be discussing that again with Pritchett. Uh, Today I am Pritchettless. So so it's going to be great. It's going to be cool. Um, So let's, uh, I see comments I want to jump into. Someone's noticing the difficult contradiction I have in my background between um, Han Solo over here, uh, right there, and uh, Spock up here. Yeah, um, I'm much more of a Star Wars fan. Uh, Star Wars is objectively the better of the franchises, but we don't have to get into that now. In fact, that kind of goes along with something that we're going to announce with Jonathan in the coming days. So make sure that you, that you come to that. All right. So, uh, so, so here we go. So let's, uh, I was, I was saying just a moment ago, I appreciate super chats. We don't require it, but if you do give a super chat, I probably will make sure that I get to those questions first. If there are no super chats or only a few, make sure that if you have a question either way that you throw in, uh, at Trinity radio so that I'll know that you're talking to me. Um, and, uh, let's see, uh, also, uh, Patreon, uh, tr- patreon.com slash Trinity radio. If you want to support us, you get a lot of free stuff. You get five seminary level classes with PowerPoint and you also get a lot of free books and you get a lot of extra episodes and all kinds of stuff. So glad you're here. If you're not a subscriber, come on, man, come on, become a subscriber and click that like button and share stuff around. Really, really appreciate that. It helps without you ever spending a dime with that. We're going to jump into this debate. Now, the important thing to remember, to my mind, the thing that is most important to remember as we go into this is that you recognize what the point of this discussion slash debate, whatever you want to call it, was. Um, I don't feel bad about calling it a debate. I know that Dillahunty didn't necessarily feel like he said we can go with debate, but I don't really like it. Here's the thing. The, 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 The thumbnail for the thing says epic debate. The title says epic debate. The host of the show said it was a debate, all right? So I'm going to refer to it as a debate. And the host of the show, in the first few seconds after the camera rolls, he said that the topic of the debate was whether or not the gospel makes sense. So that is the point, the, the discussion. That's the thing we're trying to figure out. And we're going to, we're going to talk about that, but, but I need to set this up by saying, listen, that is a very interesting question. The most academic way to go about that is not, is it weird? Is it not, is it the way I would do it if I were God? 
Is it not? Are there some things in it that seem to me impractical? The thing that's important to this question, the most academic way to answer the question of whether the gospels make sense is not even whether the gospel is true. Do you understand what I'm saying? Of course, for those of us who are interested in truth, if the gospels make sense, that is to say they're internally consistent, um, the story is internally consistent, the Christian message, because we're not talking necessarily about the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're talking about the gospel message. If it is internally consistent, um, then... In such a case, that would be helpful to know because it's more likely that it's true. It doesn't mean that it's true, but it's it's something that counts in favor of it, or at least something that doesn't count against it. So that's an important thing to know. But the point is, this was a very specific um, debate question, whether or not the uh, gospel is consistent or uh, makes sense. Does the gospel make sense? So that's important because that means that the stakes are very low here. All we have to show is that it makes sense, not that you like it, not that it's not weird, not that any of those things. So we're looking for, you need to show me something in the, in the gospel message, the Christian story, that is uh, a contradiction, that isn't consistent. What we saw Matt Dillhunty do is something very different in this debate. Now, here's where uh, I think this is going to unlock everything. Ray Comfort, whether this was on purpose or on accident— what Ray Comfort did was to present the, the Christian story and message as he understands it. And then every time Dillahunty challenged it, he would say, yeah, but the system says this, this, and this in an attempt, whether this was intentional or not, to show that it actually is internally consistent, not to show that it's true based on evidence outside of the Bible. Those are two separate questions. And to my mind, Matt Dillahunty gave a few things that he thought were weird or, or bizarre or not the way he would do it about the gospel, and then wanted some evidence to show that it was true. But none of that touches the question of, do the gospel, does the gospel make sense? To knock that down, you would have to show a contradiction or show some incoherency in the, in, in, the, in the Christian message. Again, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, but in the gospel message. And that is a very important piece. When you plug those facts in, whether or not uh, Ray Comfort went about it with those intentions, and I'm going to assume that he did, that's what he ended up doing, and it's not what Matt ended up doing. And so as a result, yeah, I think uh, I think that Ray Comfort's case wins the day. But we're going to look at some things specifically. So let's jump in to some things. Obviously, I can't go through the whole entire thing, um, you, know, uh, you know, minute by minute, but we're going to play some clips. So here we're going to start with this discussion of original sin by Matt Dillhunty. But the notion of original sin is problematic. Because did God know that, well, we'll just stick with the Bible as writ, did God know that Adam and Eve were going to fail, that they were going to disobey, that they were going to eat the fruit of the tree that he specifically said they shouldn't? Was there any way that that could have gone any other way? Is it possible that God could have created a universe in which there wasn't uh, inevitable sin? And did God know this ahead of time? Because if God knew this ahead of time and could have done differently, then God's the one that made the decision to bring original sin into the world, not Adam and Eve. Then there's this notion of inherited sin, which is not that I'm born guilty for what I'm actually doing, but that I'm already born guilty because of what other people have actually done. This notion of inherited sin begins with original sin. It progresses such that we are all guilty carrying on the sins of the fathers, not through necessarily what we've done, but because of what was done prior to us. Okay, so a couple of things there. Uh, First of all, could God have done it differently? Could God have made a different universe where Adam and Eve didn't fall? 
And we're going to hear more about that later and what he thinks that means. And secondly, uh, this issue of original sin and whether that makes sense. All right. Now, remember, does it make sense? Is it internally consistent? Now, perhaps that, you know, I don't know what happened in emails in setting up this debate. Perhaps there was more exposition about what we're supposed to do in this. But here's what we know for sure. The debate question, as stated, is does the gospel make sense? Um, that you can ask that about the Lord of the Rings. Does Lord of the Rings make sense? That is a completely independent question from whether or not it's true. Of course, I believe that the gospel is true. And of course, I believe Christianity is true. And so does Ray Comfort. And so does anyone who is a true Orthodox Christian. But it's not necessarily the debate question for tonight, which means the types of things that Ray Comfort is required to do here are very different from what we're used to in the same old, you know, debates on whether God exists and Christianity is true that we always hear. So that is an important thing to keep in mind. Now, he mentions, could God have done it another way? Let's tackle that one first. I actually released a short clip from my debate with Matt Dillahunty during the question and answer time just uh, two or three weeks ago uh, that you can go get. It is on this very question. Matt challenged me on this, and I clarified it for him two or three times. Here is the thing. What he's asking about is what's called multiple, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, uh, possible world semantics. So in philosophy, we talk about possible worlds. We're not talking about worlds that actually exist out there somewhere. It's different than that kind of multiple universe sort of a thing. But it is um, uh, it is talking about hypothetical worlds, worlds that we can imagine that don't have any contradictions in them. If they have contradictions, they're an impossible world. If they don't, they're a possible world. So a world where everything is the same except Winston Churchill never existed because he's a contingent being. He didn't have to exist. Such a world is a possible world, a world without Winston Churchill. Um, by the way, thank you, Zen Shi, so much for the super chat. I really appreciate that. She says, thank you, Braxton. You're the best. That means so much to me. I'm so glad to know that you're here. I hadn't seen you in a while, and so I'm glad to see that you're still out there. We love you and care about you, and thank you for being here, as well as everyone else. So um, he's talking about possible worlds, and he's asking, is there a possible world? Is there not a possible world where I remained a Christian? Okay, this is what I'm saying about that. That is a possible world. Because insofar as I can tell, there isn't a contradiction in that world. There's nothing contradictory about Matt staying a Christian. And I hope he becomes a Christian in this actual world, right? But here's the thing. So there's nothing contradictory about that world, but that does not mean that God could have actualized that world unless God wanted to remove Matt's free will and force him to become a Christian. Now, he could certainly do that. But short of doing that, it may be that God couldn't have actualized such a world. Are you saying that's because there's something God can't do. No, no, no. Remember, I said he could remove Matt's free will and force him to become a Christian like an automaton. But short of doing that, God can't actualize a world necessarily where Matt remains a Christian because there may, there underneath the possible worlds, you've got what are called feasible worlds. Okay. Now this is not anything weird. It's not something I'm making up. It's not like I'm getting all, everyone always accuses when you talk about possible world semantics of, oh, you're doing all these acrobats to make it true. Possible world semantics is used all the time in philosophy. This is not weird at all. This is just what it requires. When you ask a complex question, you get a complex answer. Underneath possible worlds, you have feasible worlds. And feasible worlds for libertarian free will, for free will, are worlds where, okay, though there's nothing contradictory uh, about the idea of Matt freely remaining a Christian, um, it may well be that when, of the worlds where God, if God gives man free will, you get a subset of possible worlds, and it may be that in none of those worlds is it, does it happen to be the case that Matt freely remains a Christian. That, that is a live possibility that we have to consider. 
And considering the fact that Matt in the actual world has constructed an epistemology such that nothing would convince him, I think, um, because, and, and, you know, he can't even tell us what it would take to convince him. It seems like his epistemology is, is at least as far as what he's allowed to tell us a bit, you know, not falsifiable. Then in such a situation, what we have is, um, it may be that in every feasible world, every world where God gives Matt free will, it shakes out that there isn't a world where he freely remains a Christian in such a case because of Matt, not because of God, there may be no such world. And that is an important thing, because what he's trying to say is this is one of the reasons why the gospel doesn't make sense. And so long as we have an, a possible answer to that, a defeater to that, then the, the question simply resolves. And so that, but, but let's let's go away from that from it. So that's the answer I give. But let's just go with a, a more standard answer. Let's just go with an answer that says, yeah, he could have actualized a world by, like that, but didn't. Does that mean that Christianity doesn't make sense? The gospel doesn't make sense? No, it does not. What it means is you don't like that about the gospel. It doesn't mean you have a contradiction necessarily. You have to do further argumentation to present um, a, a contradiction there, but there's not one on the surface. I can't see a contradiction there. So you have to do more work for that. So that's an important piece of the puzzle. So now that answers that. And I and here's the thing. Later in this debate, and I don't have a clip of it here, Matt says to uh, Ray about Matt's definition of atheism, this has been answered for you. You've had mo you've had years of interaction on this, and I personally have given you the answer to this. Why are you still raising this without at least addressing that uh, that statement? Well, guess what? Back at you because this is something Matt has heard an answer to many, many times, and I personally have stood across the debate stage and given him this answer. So I'm not saying he has to agree with my answer, but he should have to deal with it when he raises this objection um, if we're trying to gener uh, you know, honestly get to the truth. So, um, so all right, so, that, so there's that. And by the way, I see some of you are asking questions. First of all, remember to put at Trinity Radio if it's not a super chat, so I'll make sure that I see it. Um, and uh, and we'll, we'll go on from there. But so, uh, so original sin, um, he, he doesn't like the idea of us inheriting sin from someone else. First of all, this is a complete non-starter. Why is it a complete non-starter? Because every single person knows that they commit their own sin. So even if you don't like the idea of inheriting sin from your federal head, Adam, you still committed your own sins in your life. That you, So you know that that is a complete non-starter. Now, someone might say, well, I don't even believe in the concept of sin. Okay, but on whatever moral framework you have, subjective, objective, objective based on a subjective goal, whatever you have in your moral epistemology, there are things people do that are immoral, unless you're a complete nihilist in which we got a whole other set of problems there. But there are things that you think are immoral. So you don't have to call it sin, but you know you've done things that are wrong, right? We all have. So even if you don't like the idea of us getting this from someone else, the fact is you did it yourself anyway. So that's, that, that's just, that's a vacuous, hollow criticism. However, if God did hold you accountable for Adam's sin, is that... Is, does that make sense? Does that not make sense? Now, remember, we're not talking about does it make sense in the colloquial sense of whether you like it or not, whether it intuitively feels right to you or anything like that. We're talking about is there anything contradictory about that? You would have to give us further um, argumentation to get to the point of showing us a contradiction and incoherence in this. You haven't done that yet. So all we have is it doesn't feel right to you. Your heart doesn't resonate with it or it's just a bald assertion. So um, we would have to see more from that. Secondly, uh, there, the, the idea that we are, per so um, original sin is a complex issue, right? Within Christianity. 
not because we're doing all kinds of acrobatics, but because it's an important question and uh, it's a complex question. It requires, it requires a, a complex answer. By the way, when people get mad when Christians give complex answers about the creator of the universe, let me remind you that when we talk about quantum physics, you're going to get some weird um, answers right? that are very complex. So, and a lot of other issues too. So uh, just because it's complicated, your incredulity about it does not an argument make. All right. So, um, so with, with original sin, th there is, you, you've got a couple of concepts here. There is the idea that what we get from Adam is a sin nature, uh, which by which we mean a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Now that is actually the way the Southern Baptist Convention's doctrinal statement uh, the, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the most recent one. That's how it says it, and, and that's how a lot of Christians hold it. Uh, a nature and an environment that is inclined towards sin. The more sin you have in the world, the more that world is inclined towards sin. I mean, you drive down the road and you see advertisements for insurance companies with scantily clad women on them. Okay, so, the, the, so you know, and the more cigarettes there are in the world, the more likely, you know, people are to get addicted. To, I mean, if it's nothing else, it's at least that. It may be more than that, but it's at least that, right? And so um, you get into epigenetics and all kinds of other things. Look, we have a nature and an incl environment inclined towards sin. Um, but then there's this other question of whether we are personally culpable. Or do we have a guilt nature? Are we guilty of Adam's sin? And here, if I was talking to... Um, Matt Dillahunty about this, I would say, look, Matt, the fact is you are referencing a particular strand of Augustinian Christianity that is widespread, but it is, doesn't, it is not itself equal to the Christian message. Um, for example, I personally, and many Christians hold to, a sin nature, as I've just described it, a nature and environment inclined towards sin, but we don't necessarily have a guilt nature. We're not personally culpable for Adam's sin. We're personally culpable for our sin, and that is an important distinction. So, uh, you know, th this is what happens when you take a particular thing that you heard about Christianity growing up and you say that just is Christianity. And oftentimes, though, I'm not saying this is the case here because what he's referencing is widespread. But oftentimes what, what the, the piece you take from a particular sect of Christianity, if you're an atheist, happens to be the one that makes Christianity look the worst or is the difficult to defend or something like that. But it's not necessarily Christianity qua Christianity. Luke Pixler, thank you so, so much, pal. For that super chat, keep up the good work, guys. Adam Harwood has done some interesting work on original sin in his spiritual condition of infants. Yes. And let me say something here. Adam Harwood is the professor of systematic theology at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's a personal friend of mine and uh, had, you know, he's helped me prep for debates. He, I, I'm in a book with him called Anyone Can Be Saved. And I, my understanding is he holds exactly the position that I hold, that you have what you get from Adam is a nature and environment inclined towards sin. But you are not born personally culpable, personally guilty of Adam's sin. And if I understand Adam Harwood correctly, in his book, The Spiritual Condition of Infants, which is fantastic and not a necessarily long read, um, it actually, uh, this is actually one of the good reasons we can understand why infants are not destined for hell if they die in infancy. Um, all right, so uh, let's see. We got another super chat here. Thanks you, thank you so much, Punch Bowl Haircut. <laughs> for that super chat, my struggle. Why would God create Matt or others if he knew they would never choose him? Would you have your kids if you knew they would reject God? Okay, now let me, now here's, okay, I'm going to go ahead and answer this. It is going to come up later as a part of our discussion, but since you asked it, I'm going to go ahead and answer it a bit. So th the way that we would answer this is, first of all, we don't know for sure, but secondly, we would say, um, now, and it also impacts your understanding of hell, right? The doctrine of hell. Um, in other words, that objection, not that you phrase it as an objection, you're just asking a question, but an objection based on that would 
first of all, remember, not mean that Christianity doesn't make sense. It would mean there's something we don't like about Christianity, right? So it still wouldn't touch today's debate question. But um, it's it's an interesting question. If you it has more teeth if we affirm um, an understanding of hell that is based on the eternal conscious torment view or the traditional view of hell that says you will have uh, eternal conscious suffering of some sort that may or may not be you know the flame imagery. It, the, the flames might be imagery. You know even some traditional conservative eternal conscious torment people believe that. But if you hold to um, what is called the conditional immortality view that you will suffer commensurate to your crimes and then die, um, one could say there that such a person may well have, and I, I'm, not, this is, I'm, not, I'm not committing myself to this, but one could maybe say there that existence itself was a, was a, uh, a good that was an intrinsic good that overturns even that ultimate end. So there are answers to that. Now, in terms of the hell, um, God making, uh, God actualizing a world in which he knew that Matt Dillahunty wouldn't be saved, even if there isn't a world in which Matt Dillahunty turns out to be saved, you get into some really difficult stuff here because it may well be that Matt Dillahunty um, existing, uh, spouting what he spouts that are, that at least in the case of what we're looking at in this debate video, and I don't mean this as a slight to Matt, um, the fact that they can be shot down so easily and the gospel message clarified on a video like this leads to more people coming to know Christ so that you have in the actual world the greatest number of people coming to know Christ. And even though God actualized such a world, Matt still had free choice, right? He still had that free choice. Um, so it's ultimately, God's not culpable for that, which is the move Matt wants to make later. God's not culpable for that if Matt had free will, even though God may know what Matt's ultimate end is. So there are some thoughts on that. Now, the, the, the more personal question, would I have children if I knew my children were, were never going to be saved? Um, no, I probably wouldn't. But you know something? Uh, that's a statement about my psychology the psychology of Braxton Hunter, not about God. That's a statement about a guy living in Indiana and not about God. And I can't see what God can see. So those are important things. But the important thing for this discussion is um, the fact of the matter is that this would not speak to whether or not Christianity makes sense. It would speak to what we like or dislike uh, or how our heart feels about Christianity. But it's, a, it's an important question I think all Christians wrestle with, and it may impact your understanding of God's nature and thereby impact your understanding of hell. So important things to consider. So I'm going to move on because we got more clips to get through, but that was the issue about could God do it otherwise and original sin. Um, all right, so let's go on to this thing about blood magic. Listen to what Matt says here. Then you have the Jews, who are God's chosen people in the Old Testament, uh, who had a bunch of blood magic rituals. Essentially, in order to appease God, they would have to kill and slaughter animals and light them on fire, and the smell of burning animals was pleasant to God's nose. That is blood magic. It is, it, it is of the things we're talking about, whether or not the gospel message makes sense, this is where the nonsensical part begins. This is, this is the, the, the things that most Christians that I met and would have interacted with um, would put down as, no, 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 that's not, of God, not the sacrifice. Sacrifice, yes, but the blood magic. They just don't recognize the tie to it. So then Jesus becomes a special case sort of blood sacrifice. But the question is, why can't God just forgive people? If God created people, God created the rules, God's the enforcer of the rules, God wants to be lenient. He's the judge. He's the one that says, hey, you're never going to deserve your place in eternity. I'm going to give it to you anyway, but only if 
I get to come down and take human form and kill myself and sacrifice myself to myself to serve as a loophole for rules that I'm in charge of, and then to find out who's actually going to accept all of that. Okay, so now this somebody told me the audio on the debate was a little low, so I jacked it up. So I hope that helps. All right. So first of all, the um, tie to blood magic that he's referring to understand that Matt is really good at debate rhetoric. And rhetoric is powerful. You've heard me say this before, yada, yada, yada. Rhetoric can be helpful. It's good for people to use rhetoric sometimes because it helps to uh, make the point crystal clear. But if you're going to use that kind of debate rhetoric, expect someone to call you out, especially if there's not anything standing behind it. What Matt really wants to say here, I think, is this doesn't make sense because it seems weird and it's not the way that I think I would do it. Now, he may think that's a straw man, but I'm sorry that what, what we've seen here is a list of straw men in a row. Um, no disrespect, but I'm just I've, I've got to be bold about this. I mean, at the beginning of the you know, back and forth. Um, Ray Comfort says, you're the king of straw men, Matt. And we saw that in spades in this opening statement. So is that true? Is it a straw man? Well, blood magic, that is a rhetorical way of tying it to something that sounds stupid to try and draw people over to this idea, to this, to this framework, to look at it stupid. But I don't care if you think it's stupid. There's a lot of things that sound that you might sound stupid to you that actually turn out to be the truth. It would have sounded really stupid to some people at one time to say that the earth is round. Guess what? The earth is round. Sorry, flat earthers. Um, it might have sounded really stupid to some people at, at one point in time to think that you could do something like a heart transplant. But guess what? You can you can do those kind of things. So these are important things to keep in mind. So um, I see here Christian Metalhead says, um, keep up the good work, brother. Always enjoy hearing your reviews and perspective, especially when it pertains to Matt Dillahunty. Would love to see a round two debate with you guys. Uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for that substantial super chat. That means the world to me. So uh, oh, now I'm too loud. Uh, look, I, look, I can't. What am I supposed to do here? Let me turn me down a little bit. OK, I'm going to turn me down there, there. Hopefully that's a little bit better. Maybe I, I look, I'm, I'm, I'm all fired up today. You know why? You know why slam or in? Because today is my 19 year anniversary of marriage. How about that? How did you do it, Braxton? How did you stay married for 19 years? Well, it's simple, really. Don't get a divorce. That's how you stay married for 19 years. That's the trick. Now, in some cases, I understand that horrible things happen. That's not a reality, but that's how I did it. <laughs> and, uh, and I love my wife. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna, it's tough too, because stuff still closed down and we can't really have a proper date night, but man, did I kill it with gifts this year? I mean, let me tell you something this year. I nailed it. I nailed it. Slam RN. I nailed it. All right. Let's, uh, let's thank you for the congratulations. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, let's see where, where are we with this? Uh, yeah, blood magic. So, um, it doesn't make sense. He says, doesn't make sense. And he lists off all these things. Um, let, let, let me, let me tell you why this makes sense. So what you have is, and people that have listened to the show for a long time have heard me say all this before, but you got to do it. And it's good by repetition. Here's the thing. So, um, on the one hand, you have God as a God of love. Absolutely. And everyone wants to talk about that. And with good reason, thank God he's a God of love. And, um, you know, th that's what atheists want to point out. If your God's such a God of love, then why X, Y, and Z? Well, in most cases, here's why X, Y, and Z thing that you don't like. Because he's not just a God of love, he's also just. Both of these things, the goodness or the love and the justice, point to his goodness. He's also a good God. And because of that, uh, by the way, Zom, I was 20 when I got married. Got married young. Um, uh, I think people wait too long to get married in some cases. In some cases they should, but anyway. Um, so, uh, so those things point to God's goodness. So here's the thing. I've said this so many times, but oh, let's just take Jeffrey Epstein, all right? I always use Hitler. Let's take Jeffrey Epstein. 
Uh, here's a man who uh, manipulated uh, lots of people for his own gratification, right? And and also manipulated people out of their money. So there, there's all kinds of nefarious stuff going on. There didn't seem to care what what happened to those girls. Didn't seem to care what happened to those business partners. So you've got this guy, and 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 he dies in prison. However, that happened. He dies in prison. Some of those people who who wanted to testify in court so that he would hear them talk about the struggles that he caused in their lives, they never got that satisfaction. He never really faced certain ju- certain you know things that would happen with his judgment. Uh, he just died. It's, it's almost like he got away with it to a certain extent. The, the victims of Jeffrey Epstein don't think that justice was done. And because of that, they think that there's something good that should have happened that didn't happen. It's not like they want to do some wicked thing back to him. They want justice, which is a good thing. That is so important. Justice has to be done. And if, say, the... Um, if say the the, uh, the the justice system had just hugged Jeffrey Epstein and said, "Now, now, now, go back to your uh, go back to your paradise island of evil and go on with and but just don't do that anymore," we would say that was not good. Why wasn't it good? Because it wasn't just right. So the love is important for the goodness, and the justice is important for the goodness. And the sacrificial system may sound weird to you, but what it taught um, God's community was God's people was. There is a penalty. Sometimes it's a monetary penalty. Sometimes it's a penalty of your herbs and spices and wheat and things like that. Sometimes it it requires death for you to see, to give you an image of how important this is. And of course, you lose some of your livestock because of that. But the point is, there is a penalty for this. But, and new perspective on Paul has has fallen all over this, and and I think given us on either side a more robust picture the, the Jews were given this picture ultimately with the understanding you can't ever satisfy all of your sin. And so this pointed to the need for a perfect sacrifice that would die on behalf of mankind and pay that penalty. Now you can chalk that up with blood magic and all this weirdness to make it sound really dumb. But if you understand that God is a God of love and a God of justice and you plug both those things in, guess what you get? A good God. And you get that this system makes a whole lot of sense. A whole lot of sense. And so um, you can just say, well, I don't, I think it's dumb. But understand, you're saying it doesn't make sense to me in the colloquial way of I wouldn't have done it that way, but it doesn't mean there's a contradiction. And in fact, not only is there not a contradiction, it makes perfect sense. So Jesus comes in as that perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sin of man. He's the perfect sacrifice. And then he goes into this Bill Maher thing. Sorry, you didn't come up with this, Matt Dillahunty, and you know it. It comes from Bill Maher, this idea of God has to sacrifice himself to himself to pay the price for himself or whatever thing that is. This is a classic caricature of the Trinity, and Matt knows this. Matt has heard um, the clarifying statements about the Trinity. The, the thing about the Trinity is we have three persons and one Godhead. So Jesus is not praying to himself when he's in the garden of Gethsemane or from the cross. Um, he's talking to another person of the Trinity, the father. So this sort of reasoning, this language is just, um, it, it, he knows better. It is a straw man. That is why, see what he's treating. Here's the thing. He's treating the Trinity, the Christian concept of the Trinity as three persons who exist as one person, three gods that exist as one God. And he knows, Matt knows that's not what Christians hold. And as a result of that, is he the king of straw men? Absolutely in this case. Absolutely. Ray was not wrong. And that is a very, very important thing to to point out. So um, uh, 
All right. So, uh, so the great G man, the guy says, no, when you say that this justice makes sense, that is only your opinion. Um, well, look, here's the thing. You, when you're talking about justice, I have a standard for justice and I'm not pointing you to the Bible. I think that everyone intuitively understands, and it's not just our opinion. In fact, our entire legal system was based on this originally, and most of your legal systems, is eye for eye justice. Does that make sense? As much as anything makes sense. What you do with complex legal systems is you have to use what Daniel Dennett refers to as intuition pumps. And I like that language because what he's saying is you get up here into the specifics of how to treat a particular person. And maybe your intuition, the, the general intuition of mankind doesn't get us there. So what you have to do is you have to create thought experiments and things like that to pump your intuition up to that level so that you can see it clearly for it, what it is. I like what Daniel Dennett says about that, though he's an atheist compatibilist. And so the intuition is clear that eye for eye justice makes sense. I mean, I can't imagine a more perfect standard of justice. However, when you pump it up to that level of what do we do in a particular situation, that's an intuition pump that gets you there and everyone can see that. That's why when you explain things like this, there's very little that can be said against it in principle. So I think these are these are important ideas. All right. So um, so so it is a straw man. It's just a straw man. Let's go on and take a look at what Matt says next. So why not just create the chosen people in heaven and leave everybody else out of it? Uh if the goal is to get some people, specifically the people who like you and who you like to spend eternity with you, that's the most efficient plan. Create those people in the location with you. What, what's a boneheaded way to do this? And that would be to create a universe, wait billions of years, create a man out of mud and a woman out of that man, tell them not to do something that you know they're going to do and then threaten them with death. And then when they do it, don't kill them, just make their life difficult. Then go through a comedy of errors of having people fall or fail to love you or listen to you or obey you over and over, flood the world, start over again, confuse their languages in order to try to start over again, encourage war, gradually go from walking and talking with them to not interacting in any detectable way, and then magically impregnate a young girl so that you can take human form as a sort of God-man that's fully God, but fully man, which doesn't actually make sense, so that you can sacrifice yourself to yourself as a blood magic loophole for rules you're in charge of, so you can set aside your own anger, because that's the thing that we're being saved from, is God's wrath, uh, it's just that it's declared to be justice. Okay. So, all right. So, so here's what we've got. So again, we have a lot of the rhetoric, right? Anytime he says magic, when he's referring to the things of God, that's just rhetoric. Uh, if you say, well, it sounds like, you know, magic to me. Okay. Well, that's fine. But, um, at the grownups table, we're talking about, um, metaphysical ideas, right? Um, on the, on that view, we would have to say that, you know, quantum superposition is magic or something. You know, th th this is not helpful language. So let's, let's be grownups about this and let's, uh, let's go on with that. So, um, yeah, so, so he talks about, um, if the goal is to get people where, if to get the people you want to spend eternity with, with you, then why not just create them there? Well, we did an episode on, on the debate with inspiring philosophy and, uh, cosmic skeptic not too long ago. And we talked about just this subject. Why is heaven the way it is? Why do we do it the way that we do it? Um, those kind of things. And so uh, I'll, I'll refer you back to that. But first, let me get to some of these super chats because I missed one, I think, just a few minutes ago, a substantial one. And uh, yeah, um, Marcia Jennings says, um, happy anniversary. I sure appreciate that, Marcia. You just maybe um, uh, paid for... Uh, I, we usually use the money here for equipment, but maybe you'll, you'll allow me to use that for anniversary dinner tonight. I sure do appreciate that, Marcia. I'll let Pritchett know. Don't worry. But thank you so, so much. And then uh, we have 
Uh, Chris Mullen, Chris Mullen, what does he say? He says, feelings does not an argument make. Matt abides by sola sensus, feelings alone. God bless and congrats, by the way. Thank you so, so much, Chris, for that substantial uh, uh, super chat. That means a lot to me. Thank you all so, so much. So, um, so uh, the goal is not just to get the people you like in, into, into eternity with you. That's not what we're doing here. The goal is to get as many people, all kinds of people who are, are um, who are willing to freely enter into a relationship with you and begin a process of sanctification that makes them more like Jesus to conform to what God wants. Those who will be justified, sanctified, and glorified. Those people who want that relationship. If you don't want a relationship with, with Jesus, you don't have to have one. So it's not just about getting the people you like with you. It's about getting the people who are willing to commit to becoming like Jesus. That is what, that, that's what it's all about. And I think that there are very good reasons why the earth, our experience, our time here on earth is important for that. And we talked about that substantially on that video. But I think that's important. But most of what he says here, he talks about going through this process with the prophets, and then he goes from walking with people, then to not being around, and then he goes to this uh, virgin birth and all these kind of things and the flood and getting people back on track and what's all that about. Yeah, you know, what is all that about? Matt's saying, I wouldn't have done it that way. Thank goodness that, Matt, you aren't God. I think he said one time he was wanting to write a book, If I Were God. And that, of course, kind of puts the capital letter on what's going on with Matt, which is divine psychology. If I, if I know the mind of God, I know the mind of the God I don't believe in so well that I know what he would do if he did exist. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, it doesn't make sense to me either. What, what he's saying is, I would have done it this way. You know why it's good that God did things the way God did? What does it sound like going through all this rigmarole, trying to deal with people and get them to understand and, and doing all this on rewards and punishments, all, this whole thing? What is the deal with all of that? Why did Jesus need to come to earth and actually talk to people? Gosh, it sounds like a relationship, doesn't it? It sounds like we have an interactive God. It sounds like God wants to interact with us and he wants to plead with us. I've set before you life and death. Choose a life that you may live, you and your descendants. Why are you doing all these things that you're doing that are for your own destruction? Please don't do that. Um, I would have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen. Why, why are you? you know, this, is, this is an interactive God. This is a relationship. You know what it means? It is. Despite, I know Matt wants to make the opposite point, but this fails fabulously because what's actually going on is it's realistic. That's what relationships are like. And that's why we can thank God that, um, that he is the way he is. And I think that's so important. Also, this deal about he walking with people and then the more we, the more we advance in science, the less God's there and all that. This is a complete, this is why people need to read the Bible more. This is one place where many atheists and many Christians are completely on board with the same advice. Read more Bible. Because if you read more Bible, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say things like this. You know, the idea is that all throughout the Bible, starting with the Old Testament, you have all this supernatural, 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 and it gets less and less and less and less toward the end of the Bible. And then throughout Christian history, it's less and less and less till today. We don't see any evidence of supernatural stuff at all. It's not really how it is. You know that in the Bible, there were three dominant periods of miraculous stuff going on like that. There was the stuff, obviously, in the garden in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You had and and let's let's add into that Moses because he's the, he's the books of Moses. You've got the stuff with Moses in Egypt and Moses his own life and things like that. You've got that stuff. 
Then you've got a stretch, to, and there, you have stuff sprinkled in, but there's a stretch till you get to Elijah and Elisha. You have a major period of miracles and supernatural obvious stuff going on there with the, with the fire from heaven on Mount Carmel and all kinds of other things. Then you have this stretch, and there's still stuff sprinkled in, but you have this stretch till you get to, um, uh, till you get to Jesus and the time of the apostles. So it's not like, plus, when you put it all in one book together, even a book as expansive as the Bible, it may look to you without looking at it like I've just described it, like, oh, stuff's just going along left, right, and center, miracles, 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 and then we don't see it anymore. No, as I've said, there are periods where that stuff is happening. And, by the way, let's not overshoot with this claim that this stuff doesn't happen today. That's just a bald assertion, and he didn't necessarily say that, except indirectly to say that the more we have scientific stuff where we can test things, we see it's not the case. Go back and listen to the two or three episodes we did on miracles and the episode we did on um, Jesus appearing to Muslims because th it's certainly there. And even if you don't think this sort of, um, let's say, um, uh, anecdotal sort of a claim matters much, let's put a little gravy on top of this case that we're making and say that if you will, if you will go to any crowd of people almost anywhere except maybe an atheist convention and ask them how many of you had a loved one that you believe a miracle happened, a medical miracle, or when people were slipping off into death, they started talking about things that, that were drenched in uh, terminology like they're seeing a city of light or they're seeing Jesus or, or things like that. Would you please raise your hands? I guarantee you that in most, your average group of people of say 100 or more, you're going to have multiple hands going up in those, in those groups. I'm not saying that proves it. I'm just saying put a little gravy on top of this thing that we're doing here. Jeffrey Ingman, thank you so, so much for that super chat. I so appreciate you guys. You're being so good. Um, that is so meaningful to me. Thank you so, so much. I, I appreciate it. Um, so, uh, so this, this thing about walking with, and then he's just gone. This is just, you, you read the Bible more, Matt, read the Bible more, everyone else too. Um, you can agree with me, right? You think reading the Bible is going to make someone an atheist. I think it's going to make someone a Christian. So let's read the Bible more. We can all tell people to do that. Oh, the unapologetic apologist. Uh, by the way, I want to say, um, and I think JMD apologetics, who's also in the chat, um, was there too for a bit of it, but the unapologetic apologist recently did a discussion with Tyler Vela on a Christian theological issue having to do with whether or not you have free will and what that free will looks like. I encourage you to go check that out because that was a fascinating discussion. Um, good job, unapologetic apologist. So, um, that's what we have to say about that. Let's move on. And, but the point is all this going back and forth and all, it sounds like a relationship, right? Because our God is realistic. It's an interactive relationship with God. And then he says this, Perhaps the goal might be to teach people that you have to go through and live life, the, the hard knocks lessons, uh, that way of actually learning and understanding. But which is a better way of teaching, a classroom with an actual instructor there to guide, or one where the students just show up with a list of things they believe that the teacher wants us to investigate? Okay, um, so what would be better? What would be better? Wouldn't a classroom situation be better where you've got this teacher that can teach you these things and then you'll know exactly how to live the Christian life? Yeah, that's a pretty great idea. That is a pretty great idea. That's why in the Old Testament, God used Oh, wait, God did do that. Didn't he use prophets and he, and, and to speak directly? And he had people read the law and they get on their rooftops and listen to the law being read. And, and that's how they communicated that. And then now in the New Testament, um, Jesus told Peter that, that um, on this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And we have this church system set up. Then Paul carried forth many of the synagogues, turned into churches. And you would teach these people straightforward autodidact or didactic teaching about how they're supposed to live the Christian life. And we set up pastors and elders and we got deacons. And this thing has continued. And now 
now it is because of that very system. It is now spread throughout the entire world. And by the way, because I know it's coming in the chat, the fact of the matter is, in spite of the fact that someone's going to say, yeah, but there's all this disagreement, what is what we what we ultimately agree about, if you're an Orthodox Christian at all, is one church, two testaments, three creeds, four councils, I think I've got that right, and the first five centuries of the Christian faith. We all believe that uh, God exists, God raised Jesus from the dead, and it's by trusting and repenting in Him, His return one day, uh, that you're saved. And so I think all of this is very, very important to keep in mind. God gave us a classroom. This is why if you're not going to church, go to church, be around other believers. Yeah, they're not all perfect, but he gave us that classroom. You say, yeah, but that's not like God showing up and doing it for us. Um, the church is the body of Christ. That's how the Bible speaks of it. Corporately, we make up the body of Christ. And as a result of that, it carries forth the work of Christ. And he said, you'll do greater things than I've done. And the church has spread now all over the world as a result of this. One thing that unbelievers cannot say is that the system that the early church developed that I believe was based on what Jesus wanted you know, in, in its fundamentals um, has gone all over the world, right? So how can you say that it was a failure? So I think that this is um, I think that this is all important to, to to keep in mind as we go forward. All right, let's move on with uh, the next thing. And this is where we get into something very, very, very important that I said at the beginning about how the two sides, I think, approach this thing differently. And whether it was on purpose or not, Ray Comfort's straightforward preaching of the gospel style. Um, and by the way, you know something? We get wrapped up in the apologetics and worldview discussion backs and forths that go on on capturing Christianity and modern day debate and places like this to where we think we know how it's supposed to go. And there's this academic presentation of points and data and all those things. And I love that. That's what we do on this channel. That's what I've done in my debates. But you know something? There's another Christian discipline, which is the presentation of the gospel message, the preaching of the gospel. And if you're just going in to have some sort of an ivory tower discussion about some nuance of the Bible or about God's nature, that is an important and valuable thing in and of itself. But if you're going in doing evangelistic apologetics, which is what my ministry is built on, which is ultimately I want Matt to come to know Jesus. I want him to get saved. And all of you who are unbelievers in the chat, then guess what, folks? The reality is what's going on here is perfectly appropriate and you can laugh at it all you want. But the preaching of the gospel, not necessarily apologetics itself, has led to most of the conversions in the world throughout human history because God used that, right? Because as a means, he can use apologetics that way too and has, but don't make fun of it. You say, yeah, but this wasn't the medium for it. I think it was the medium for it. You know why? Because the debate topic was, does the gospel make sense? So a presentation of the gospel, and then when someone challenges it with what they think is a problem with it, a response for why that's not a problem, is what should be done. That it's not what you're used to, or that I'm used to, shouldn't matter. And uh, I think that's um, really important. Um, Matt got clearly upset during the debate. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to get to that in a bit. Um, a couple more super chats. I so appreciate you guys. I, I don't want to miss them uh, because you, you gave them and you deserve uh, to have them read. Uh, let's see. There's the, uh, we're getting right back to it. So don't, don't tune me out here. Ian Connolly says, happy anniversary. Love the channel. Thank you so much, Ian. That means the world to me, a fellow bearded brother rejoicing in my anniversary. That's, that's so means so much. Thank you. And I may have missed one. If I did, I'm sorry. So um, back to it now. So 
Uh, by the way, we got 171 people watching. Hey, I so value that. And thank you. If you will subscribe, that will mean the world to me. That's the best anniversary present you can give me is you can subscribe to the channel and perhaps give me a thumbs up and perhaps share it around. Hey, I'm just saying um, my anniversary. I get to say what I want about that. I'm just kidding. But thank you so much. Uh, all right. So let's move on to um, to this. Matt is asking for a demonstration of the truth of it or the truth of some aspect of it. This is, understand, Ray Comfort's position, whether he was trying to do this or not, based on the debate question, could be something like this. Middle Earth, Lord of the Rings, makes sense, meaning it's internally consistent. There's no contradiction, something like that. And then Dillahunty is over here saying, yeah, but prove that it's true. Prove that Mordor uh, is real or something like that. Do, do you see what I'm saying? All right, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Of course, I the easy thing for skeptics to say who are lazy skeptics to kick up with more um, uh, interesting responses would be to say something like, yeah, because like Lord of the Rings, it's not real. No, I'm making an analogy. That's the function of analogies, right? But what I am saying is that though it's important, the truth of, of the gospel is important, showing that it makes sense is internally consistent without contradictions is important when we come to that later discussion. And of course, that was the focus of this. Jim Amberg, the channel angel, thank you so much for that super chat. I so, so appreciate that. Um, all right. So, uh, uh, by the way, here's my James impression. James from Modern Day Debates. Welcome, guys. I am so excited. This is going to be an epic, epic debate. I am so excited. I just can't hold myself in. Love you, James. Uh, just thought I'd throw that out there. All right. So uh, be your be your most, what does he say? Your most friendly selves or something like that. All right. Um, so, uh, let's, uh, so, so he's, he's looking for a demonstration. All right. So what, where do we, where do we see that? So, uh, uh, how does that demonstrate? Let's see. So that, that's it. Matt, you're the straw man king. That was amazing. I could write a book on everything you said there, but let's just pick up some of the things you said. Uh, one of them is that God didn't give any signs about the speed. Yes, he did. He's given you a conscience. He's written it with a a pen of a diamond on your heart. Conscience is so powerful, it drives many men to drink and some to suicide. It's how, do you, how do you show that God gave me a conscience? Also, James, by the way, you in the chat, I got to cut you off. I know you've got a round in the chamber just ready to go. All right, so um, let's, uh, let's, I'm just teasing with you, James. You know I love you. So, um, all right, uh, let's, uh, let's, take a, let's take a look at this. So, so, he, so Dillahunty's response to this now, you say, yeah, but he's just making assertions. Ray Comfort is just making assertions. Well, first of all, he could develop a moral argument and, and he kind of does in a way, but that's not really the point. He's saying, here's the gospel message. I think it's consistent. And Matt said, how would you, how would you demonstrate that? Isn't, isn't that what he said? Let me, let me jump back in. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Let me, so let me that, that's it. Powerful. It drives many men to drink and some to suicide. It's how, do you, how do you show that God gave me a conscience? How do you show God gave me a conscience? Not the point of this debate. You're asking, give me evidence that this is true. Remember, like someone saying, uh, Lord of the Rings makes sense. Yeah, but how, how do I know that Mordor exists? Not the topic of this discussion. Sorry. So that's where it gets off. Now, I should say, to be completely fair and to steel man Matt, Matt does say something like it would make sense if such a God exists that he would give the kind of evidence that I think he should give, or, or it doesn't make sense that he didn't give evidence enough that people could believe in the modern world, something like that. So he's kind of rolling that into, it's kind of a backdoor way of trying to make this debate the same old debate that we've all had a thousand times before, but it's still misguided because 
though that's colloquial, it makes sense to you. First of all, there's an assumption there that he hasn't given the evidence. And of course, most of us think that, 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 you know, you look around at the world, you see design everywhere. You've got all these arguments, incredible evidences. You don't like it. But of course, you have an epistemology that we don't think allows for you to be convinced. There's an epistemological problem there. So there's an assertion there that this evidence isn't there. And secondly, what makes sense to you colloquially is that he would give a certain type of evidence. But, but, but there's no contradiction in the gospel message, which is what you need to show to beat this thing off. And you can't do it. But to show that this demonstration thing, um, uh, well, let's see. Uh, here's another example. Did God know I was going to be a non-believer? He knows all about you, Matt. Uh, okay. Could God have created a different universe where things went differently? Where, for example, I became the preacher that I set out to be? Yes. Okay. So if God created this world when where I end up an atheist, instead of the world where I end up a believer, then God made the choice that resulted in this particular universe over another one, correct? Yeah, but... Man, this is like yeah, a, but there's no but here. God made the choice like that resulted in this universe. No, I've just made an ironclad argument. Ironclad, based on your own statements, that God is the one that is ultimately responsible for choosing the universe in which I'm a non-believer, as opposed to choosing the universe where I'm a believer. That means that the ultimate responsibility for that decision is not mine, but His. Whoa, 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 whoa. So we covered this already, right? We've already shot down the issue that he's got a problem with because his issue is could God have created a world where I was a preacher or whatever. Um, we, we've already tackled that, explained that. Now, I think Ray Comfort is a Calvinist. I could be wrong, but I think he's a Calvinist. So as Calvinist, uh, he, you know, for him, could God have created a world like that? Yeah. I mean, I say he could because he could have deterministically made it such that, by the way, I, I want to I thank uh, Indrish. Indirish for uh, this super chat. Thank you so much, man. He may not even be here now. So he's got Robertson, Jenison. Uh, so, but thank you so much for showing up. That means so much. You're a faithful uh, viewer of the show. But um, but 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 look at this. So um, oh, I've completely lost my train of thought. Where where am I going with this thing? So uh, let me listen to it again. Let me. Okay. So so we've already answered this thing about did God know? Right. God could have made a world like that, and I could say, yeah, God could remove your free will and force you. To become a preacher. Well, of course, if Ray Comfort is a Calvinist, he believes that compatibilistic determinism or something like that is true. So he thinks that is, you know, God could have done that and may well have done that. It's the issue about free will in the sense that non-Calvinists believe in it isn't even on the table for Ray Comfort if Ray Comfort is a Calvinist, which I think he is, but I'm not sure. Sorry, Ray, if, if it's not true. But um, yeah, so Sam Aaron says, yeah, Ray's a Calvinist. All right. So um, so that's not even on the table for him. So yeah, he can answer that way. But, um, but, but then this thing he said, but on my view where there's free will, Dillante says, oh, then it's on God. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's not on God. If you're free, like if in, in, in any possible world, you're free. And let's just say there is a world where you freely would have become a preacher and God didn't actualize that world. And he did actualize a world where you didn't become a preacher or even remain a Christian. Still, this is the thing about what is called Molinism, and we've got episodes on that. This is the thing about it. You have libertarian freedom in those worlds. The fact that God chose a world where you freely chose not to be a Christian does not mean you didn't have free will in that world or that God's responsible for the sinful thing you did. That is an, that's just a categorical error. Um, so I think that's an important um, uh, thing. So uh, Tyler Folsom, uh, let me see if I can find it. Tyler Folsom says... What are the differences between God creating a deterministic universe and Calvinism? You began to make a distinction between the two. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get this real quick. So um, 
Cal, so Calvinism is the branch of Christianity that has a deterministic understanding of the nature of reality. It's divine determinism. Now, the thing is, most Christians affirm libertarian freedom, libertarian freedom being the thing, the type of freedom that says you could have chosen other than whatever you ended up choosing, or if at the very least, nothing external to you determines your actions. That's freedom in the way that maybe you've thought of before. Determinism, of course, is determinism. Many Calvinists will couch it in the language of compatibilism, and some atheists do too. Daniel Dennett uh, does, and, um, and, and as a fan of Dennett's, uh, Matt Dillahunty used to. Um, may still on time on occasion. And what compatibilism is, is not an in-between, really. What it is, is it's determinism, but it's using the language that is of freedom. Now, they would say that, that it is a real form of freedom, but what it wants to say is you're free to do whatever you want to do. Or you, yeah, you're free to do whatever you want to do, and that means you're free. But you're not free to want whatever you want. And that is, um, and, and your wants are determined by your nature, which is determined by other things so it's just determinism, but they use the language of freedom to get to moral responsibility. So there's there's a difference. That's the distinction. So some Calvinists would say there are hyper-Calvinists who are hardcore determinists, uh, determinists, and then there are um, there are people who, uh, and then there uh, someone says, "Don't finish without telling the story." Jonathan Pritchett, Jonathan Pritchett says, "Don't you dare finish without telling the story of your uh, wedding day." Uh, I, I will, I will do that at the end. Yeah. So it's a funny story. You need to stay to the end to hear it. Uh, but yeah, so that, so, so that's they, the compatibilist would say that the hyper Calvinist hardcore determinists are going too far, but in practice, well, just go listen to my debate slash discussion with, um, reformed uh, Christian apologist that is on our debates feed, or it's one of the recent episodes. You can hear my thoughts on that or show up, uh, this Friday for me and inspiring philosophy as we talk about that. All right. So, um, thanks Jonathan. That's a good reminder. I will do that. All right. So, um, so uh, what, what, what was I, what, I'm, you guys, I'm getting completely off track here. Um, so we, we've, we've answered that, but it's important to understand that, uh, even if God actualized a world where you freely become an atheist instead of a world where you freely become a Christian, imagining that there is such a world where you freely remain a Christian. The truth is in both worlds, Matt is still libertarianly free and it's not on God. It's on Matt where I think you can make a case that it's on God is if divine determinism is true, where God is indirectly determining everything that happens. But then of course that, that would get us into a Calvinism discussion. I don't care to have that discussion today. Finding truth, one of our mods says, uh, is not much, but maybe this will help you buy a really nice dinner for you and your wife. Thank you so much, Finding Truth. I so appreciate that. I so, so appreciate that. Would y'all like to see my wife on an episode at some point? Um, I'm having trouble convincing her, but maybe if you would give some pressure, I could show her. Look at all these nice Christians and atheists who want to have you on the show. Um, that's uh, She's much more blunt than me. She's more Pritchett-like, um, but with a nice, soft um, veneer. All right. So, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's get to it. All right. So, um, the next thing, let's go to the next clip. Uh, now this is going to show you an example of the, of the problem where Matt is wanting an, a, a, an evidence that Mordor exists when we're talking about is Lord of the Rings internally consistent. Listen to how much he talks about demonstration and a need for a demonstration. So that, that's it. Matt, you're the straw man king. That was amazing. I could write a book on everything. Whoops, whoops, whoops. Uh, that's I don't not see any it. mechanism by which we can demonstrate the supernatural is real. 
You don't get to call it a creation. You have to demonstrate that it's a creation. Could you? How could you demonstrate to me that you have a relationship with your wife? In, you get inspiration through the scripture that you think is a message from God. I think you get inspiration from scripture that you have not demonstrated as a message from God and is most likely your own brain telling you what to think. And, and, and that's, it's great because there's no way to demonstrate it. Just like there's no way for you to demonstrate the truth of your conviction that there is a God or that God is the, the, the lawgiver or judge of the universe. Okay, the problem is that you can't demonstrate that your God exists. I and I can demonstrate that I was married. I don't need you, I love that when we're sitting here trying to figure out how you could possibly demonstrate the truth of your conviction, all you do is come back to tell me that I know you're right. So we're trying to, I can't believe we're sitting here trying to figure out what's your evidence or reason for believing the truth of your conviction. That's not why we're here. That's not what we're doing here. This is a misunderstanding. Again, perhaps there were emails that clarified this, but I don't see any evidence of that. I mean, I don't have those in front of me. And what I do have is a debate question that says, does the gospel make sense or whether the gospel makes sense? And that is, whether the gospel makes sense is an independent are you getting this? Am I saying it enough? That is an independent statement or question from, is it true? Right. And, and they're related because it's helpful if they make sense, if it makes sense in order to showing that it's true, but that, that is really important. Now I'm going to, I'm going to regret doing this. I just know I'm going to regret doing this, but there was someone star Wars apologist here says, um, use a Palpatine, do it, do it voice. And she will, I'd love to see her on here. I can do a pretty mean Palpatine. Um, here it goes. I'm going to regret this, but here it goes. Oh, I'm afraid the deflector shields will be quite operational when your friends arrive. There you go, Star Wars apologist. And I just freaked everybody else in the chat out. So, all right. Hey, we're, we're having fun, right? It's my, it's my, yeah, I don't normally do this kind of stuff, but hey, it's, it's my anniversary. Deal with it. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next thing. And so you saw one right after the other looking for a demonstration, right? Um, and, and here's another example, but it's important. Yeah, and here's my problem. I have an instruction book that is inspired by God that tells me all about you. God knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how you many? by name. <laughs> I, I don't know. God knows. But let okay, me finish. So what I, let me how finish do you know that that's even true? Let me finish what I'm saying because okay. it's so important. You see it there again. How, how do you know it's true? How do you know it's true? Um, th that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about, this, this, does it make sense? And his analysis and his opening statements of, of whether it makes sense came down to this multiple world or a possible world semantics. And, uh, and, and it came down to, I wouldn't have done it that way, or this seems weird, or it's like blood magic or whatever, um, is, is going, is going on there. Um, and so I think, uh, all of that is really important and wow, that may be the biggest super chat. I've ever seen on this channel. Oh my gosh. No thaf, no thaf, unless that's some other kind of currency. Bless your heart. Thank you for extending Christian liberty to the theologically conservative annihilationists. Yeah. And uh, I'm just, I, I don't, I don't mean to, uh, I'm not going to get emotional, but and it's not, it's not just because of the money, but I, I just, and blown away, honestly, by the generosity that you all have given us on this channel that we don't deserve. We're just apologetics and theology geeks, man. Uh, but we, but we believe in this stuff. We believe in the truth. And I just, uh, I'm, I'm blown away. I'm blown away by that. Thank you so, so much. Uh, wow. I'm speechless. 
I'm speechless. Um, thank you. Thank you all of you for what you do to make this channel possible. I, unbelievable. Un unbelievable. Um, all right. <laughs> if I could pull myself back together. Is a correction here. Uh, Slam RN says, Ray Comfort is not a Calvinist. I, I didn't know that. I thought he was. Uh, but I think he is a presuppositionalist. Wow. I'm still reeling from that. Th thank you. Thank you so thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Uh, all right. Um, this episode is dedicated to you in the super chat. Uh, thank you so much. All right. Now we're going to get a little bit more serious here because we're, we're closing it down. I know we've been going for a long time, but we're, we're getting down to the end. But uh, a serious thing uh, came up. <laughs> stop it. I go. Okay. Somebody's telling. Okay. I won't. I won't. Someone says stop interrupting yourself for super. I won't do it then. But thank you, Daniel514, for that incredible super. I can't help it. I can't help it. All right. Here's what Matt says. This is somewhat unrelated. But it's an important enough issue. I'm thinking of doing a show on it soon because it is a serious problem. And I think it was treated uh, recklessly as though it's not a serious problem in this debate. It has to do with porn addiction. And here's what Matt says. I mean, when did you last look at pornography? Today. Yeah. And so you're addicted to it like every male. I'm not addicted to it. There's no such thing as porn addiction, but I'm definitely not addicted to it. There's no such thing as porn addiction. Now, it is true that there are some papers and, and meta-analysis that are, that are saying that, but the only person, I, the only people I know of who really argue that there's no such thing as porn addiction are people who treat the DSM as though it is a Bible dropped out of heaven from God. Uh, there are higher, there are other uh, more globally accepted um, diagnostic tools that do talk about sexual behavioral um, uh, problems and, and things like that. And if you want to, I mean, not addiction. I mean, an addiction at the very least is, is your, we could say your extreme difficulty stopping doing a particular thing and it's hurting your life or causing problems in your life. Right. We could, we could at least say that, right. Um, you know, coffee's an addiction, but it's not necessarily hurting anybody, you know, the, 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 but an addiction of a sort that is, that is causing you trouble in your day-to-day -day life. Um, that, that's at the very least what we could call a serious addiction, right? Does pornography do that? Yes. Pornography does that. There are studies that are, that are indicating that one of the reasons that this is a little bit, we get in a little bit, uh, you know, private stuff here about people, but, but it, th there's good reason to believe that many people as young as 20 years old are experiencing, men are experiencing sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction. And, and it, it, it's, it's strongly indicated that it could be linked to porn use uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which is you kind of numb yourself to uh, normal sexual stimuli. This is a very, very serious thing. Uh, but don't take my word for it. Let's look at some of the studies. So, I, and I'll I'll try to put a link to some of this stuff in the notes. I haven't yet, but uh, here are some studies on this from the Journal of Behavioral Addictions from 2018. The author is uh, Christian Lyer and, and Jan Snagowski uh, and a few others. Tendency toward internet pornography use disorder. Differences in men and women re regarding attentional bi uh, biases to pornographic stimuli. Key findings. The results of this study showed a relationship between attentional bias and symptom severity of internet pornography disorder partially mediated by indicators of cue reactivity and craving. Here's another one. Pornographic binges as a key characteristic of males seeking treatment for compulsive sexual behaviors. 
qualitative and quantitative 10 week long diary assessment. Uh, the findings this study found that binge watching of pornography is common pattern of individuals struggling with pornography addiction. Individual compulsively using pornography have elevated anxiety levels. Uh, if you have anxiety out there uh, and you're using porn, that's here's an example of what you could stop doing. Trait and state impulsivity in males with tendency toward internet pornography use disorder. Trait here's the key findings. Trait impulsivity was associated with higher symptom severity of internet pornog pornographic pornography use. Gray matter de deficits and altered resting state connectivity in the superior temporal gyrus among individuals with problematic hypersexual behavior findings compared to healthy subjects individuals with hypersexual behavior had significant reductions in gray matter volume in the left superior temporal gyrus and right and right middle temporal gyrus i don't know what that means because i'm not a brain scientist it goes on and on and on and on and you can filter these results according to male or female addiction anxiety uh um, assault culture, behavioral addiction. There's all kinds of things that you can use to look at this and, 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 and discuss it. So um, I want to go to something that Matt said just a moment ago about, you know, he's in the debate, those of you that saw it, you saw that he wanted to go to um, uh, with, with uh, spanking your children. He said, let's, let's not pay attention to what the Bible has to say. I don't care what the Bible has to say about it. What did he say we should say about it? Also, let's listen to actual science and psychology. Also, let's listen to actual science and psychology. Also, let's listen to actual science and psychology. Yeah, and what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you're going to say that about spanking children, guess what we should say about porn addiction? Also, let's listen to actual science and psychology. Also, let's listen to actual science and psychology. Also, let's listen to actual science and psychology. Now, I know that Matt would say that he is doing that because there are certain studies that show that, but I'm telling you something. If th th this could be an example of confirmation bias, and if that's too harsh, let me at the very least say this. There is enough out there on uh, porn addiction, and it is destroying so many lives um, that, that you need to be very careful what you're enduring. People are listening. People hear what Matt is saying, and there's, you know, who is a big chunk of his audience? Young men. And if what you're saying is not true, if you're wrong about this on scientific grounds, taking religion and theology completely out of it, then do you want to be responsible for helping to prop up that message? I don't think so. I don't mean to be too rough because I believe Matt believes what he's saying. But what I am saying is this is a serious issue that we need to take very, very seriously. All right, now we're going to look at one last thing, and this is where Matt gets mad toward the end, but it goes back to the theme of this whole discussion. So let's listen to this clip. The Christian, according to Scripture, is someone who knows the Lord. That's what the Bible says. It's the book of Hebrews. When someone's born again, they come to know God. You didn't. You were deceived. You did what Judas did. You followed Jesus for a few years, and you fell away in time. Do it again. Do it properly. This time, truly repent. And what you, when you put your hand to the plow, you won't look back because God will make you fit for the kingdom. You know, so You're saying that there's nobody in the history of the world who's ever sincerely believed who is now an atheist. I don't know why you're bringing the word sincere. Sincere doesn't matter. You can be sincerely on a plane heading for New York, but if you're heading for Hawaii, you're in the wrong direction. Sincerely you're believing, sincerely believing that they have a relationship with Christ is what I'm talking about. Yeah, they may be wrong. Oh, mm -hmm, but like now you've just set up a scenario where you can't be wrong. Congratulations. Well, like happened to you. No, no, no. You, you don't get, no, no, Ray. I swear to the God that you believe in, if you make one more accusations about what happened to me that just isn't true, we're just done. Okay, um, I, I wanna say something first before we get to that clip. Uh, someone 
talked about sex trafficking. Yeah, do you, you don't think there's a connection between pornographic use and sex trafficking? Get the book. Culture. Mm, what is it? Culture. Somebody help me out. It's a David Platt book. Uh, something to do with culture. It's it's relatively new. And, um, and he has chapters on different social things that are going on. One of the chapters is on pornography and it's, it's worth the, it's worth the cost of the book. And let me tell you what, um, the, the, the thing about it is he gives the data there that if you watch pornography on a somewhat regular basis, the chances that you are viewing someone who has been sex trafficked is, is, is much higher than I think you anticipate that it is. And, and you're thereby indirectly supporting it. So if you're against sex trafficking, you ought to be against uh, pornography. Someone can give me some kind of a logical fallacy there. Don't care. This is a nasty, disgusting thing that um, that is hurting a lot of people, and we need to confront it where we can. I think the people who are atheists, who are self-respecting atheists, um, and I'm not saying that Matt is a self-respecting atheist. I'm trying to give a message. Um, I, I'm just saying, look, if, you, if you're a self-respecting atheist, drop that stuff. Here's another reason. When you say stuff like that, you, you, when, when you say something like porn is not an addiction or you speak as though it's not that big of a deal or, or in the same thing, talking about prostitution that way. Let, let, me, let me tell you what message that sends to, to your listeners. If you have any desire to convince your listeners, and though Matt says all the time that he's not trying to convince anybody, he's just saying he doesn't know and he's listening for people to convince him. Many of these atheists are operating as evangelists for their position. And, and they'll tell you it's because they think that religion is bad for culture and all these sorts of things. But when, but, but you don't want to, you want to shoot down this thing that I agree is sometimes a straw man for particular atheists that they're just doing this because they want to be able to get into their sin. I'm not saying you're doing that, Matt, but when you say stuff like that, it sure sounds that way to certain people who are not going to give you the benefit of the doubt like I am. And so I think that's really important. Um, all right. Uh, so, so, I, I, I can't, I can't end this. I can't, I, I want to comment on this clip because this is, there is a fair amount of humor in listening to this debate, unintentional humor from both guys. All right. I'm not laughing at them. I'm laughing with them. This is one of the most in, funny uh, debates I think I've ever seen. Now, I don't mean to say that we should laugh at Matt because Ray was being mean or something like that, but let's think about this claim. That um, that that Ray is saying, no, you weren't ever really a Christian. You never knew Jesus because a Christian is someone who knows Jesus. And, you know, he didn't go this far, but he has in the past. So well, you're admitting that you didn't know Jesus. Right. This is kind of funny the way this thing panned out. But but let me just say something about this. The reality is. Ray is saying that's upsetting Matt. What's upsetting Matt is Ray is saying to Matt that his interpretation of his experience is wrong, right? Because he grants, you might've sincerely believed you were, you were a believer because there's a difference in believing in Christ and believing on Christ, right? Believing the truths that even the demons believe versus believing on Christ. Like you're committing yourself to, you may have sincerely felt like you were doing that, but, but, but Ray is saying, I'm saying you're not, you didn't do that right now. Not every Christian would say that it depends on your view of perseverance of the saints or eternal security. But Matt's response is, how dare you tell me how to interpret my own experience? Is that not what Matt has done in this very debate and on multiple occasions when he's telling Christians that they are interpreting their experience wrongly and they don't have a relationship with Jesus? Now you say, well, but, but that's what he thinks. That's what he believes. Okay. 
and I'm not upset about it. And Ray says in the discussion, I'm not upset about it. To paraphrase, he's like, I'm kind of not knowing what to say to you because I'm telling you what my worldview says. And you're sitting here getting upset about to hang up on me. But, but I'm saying to you, you're interpreting your experience wrongly. You're saying to me, I'm interpreting my experience wrongly. I don't get it. What's the problem here, right? Now, if you think, yeah, but Ray's being a jerk, really, because he's not offering any evidence that Matt is wrong or that what he's saying is true. Again, let's look back to the principal question of this discussion, which is not, is it true? It's, does it make sense? Matt can say that he was really a Christian and maybe be right. But you know what? Ray is still saying, here's my worldview and a consistent reading of my worldview um, is that you weren't ever really a Christian in the sense that I'm talking about. And that is a consistent position. And, and on that position, you would expect Matt to say that, that he really was, right? I'm not questioning whether Matt really was. That's a theological issue we can talk about another time. That's not the point. And even in my debate, I turned around and told him I'm not getting into that or saying that. But, here's, but, this, but you see what's going on here, right? It, it's difficult to understand how you can say that someone's wrong to say that you're interpreting your past experience wrongly and then turn around and say, but they're interpreting their experience wrongly. <sighs> wow. Okay. So I've come to the end of this thing. And uh, before I go, I'm going to tell you the, the merit. So you've got, I think you've gotten the principal issues that I take away. And that's why I think we can say that whether he meant to or not. See, I grant that I think by and large, Ray Comfort showed up to preach, right? I think that's true. Um, and that's not a problem unless it was, you know, framed up that, no, we're going to have this academic discussion about whether or not it's true. That wasn't the title of the debate. So as it's not a title of the debate, it seems like him showing up to preach, intentionally or unintentionally, he answered the call of the debate question. Matt took it in a different direction. To the debate question, he said, basically, I'm summarizing, paraphrasing here, but he said it doesn't make sense because it's weird. It sounds like blood magic. I don't like it. It's not what I would do. It's not what I would expect God to do. Um, and you can't prove that it's true. None of those things speak to the academic question of whether it makes sense, by which we mean any academic reading of that is, is it internally coherent? That's why I give it to Ray Comfort. There you go. Now, Jonathan mentioned that I should give my marriage story, my wedding story. So here goes. It's pretty good. So uh, on the day of my wedding, I was worried about all the things that weren't going to matter in the vast scope of the married life. And I wasn't worried about the one thing, the one physical object that would be with us for the rest of our married life. So I woke up on the day of my wedding and, and I wasn't sure whether I was going to fit in my tuxedo. And so, uh, you know, because I'd, I'd eaten a lot at that rehearsal dinner the night before. I don't know. You're worried about that. You can get married if your tuxedo doesn't fit, but I'm worried about that. So I jump out of bed. Uh, I put on my tuxedo and I'm proud to tell you I was as gorgeous then as I am bald headed and bearded before you today. So I wasn't worried about that anymore. Then I was worried. Oh, shoot. It's raining outside. Is it raining outside? Now, that wouldn't be a problem, except that we're having an outdoor wedding. So I rushed down. I threw the door open and it was raining so hard you couldn't see the mailbox at the end of the driveway. So I rush in, I turn on the Weather Channel. We were living in Nashville, Tennessee at the time, and, and, and there was just a big red dot all over Nashville. And they were saying at the bottom, there was a crawler at the bottom of the screen, said flash flood warning, don't go anywhere, stay at home, get in the basement, throw the baby under the bed, whatever you've got to do to be safe, be safe, don't leave today. So I told my dad, I said, you got to get on the phone and call that woman and tell her, 
I'm the man in this relationship. And if you're laughing, I feel you across the waves of the internet laughing. You should laugh because I wasn't the man until 1030 that morning when the wedding was to happen. And it's been questionable since. Uh, as I said, my wife is, is a bit more direct than, than I seem to be sometimes. But so I, so I, I told her, him, I said, you got to get on the phone and call that woman and tell her we're getting married out there in a park. Uh, no, yeah, we're getting married in a church, not out there at the park like God intended. That's got to be in the Bible somewhere that you got to get married in the church. And, and it's not. It, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that. But so my dad got on the phone. And he said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I understand. Yes, ma'am. And he hung up and he said, son, I don't know how to tell you this, but she said she's getting married at that park to somebody, whether you're out there or not. So we got in the car, me and my brother, we took off for the park. We pulled into Percy Warner Park in West Nashville. And I, as I live and die, when we pulled through the gates of that park, there was not so much as a drop of dew on a blade of grass. Now, outside the gates of that park, you can stand on the top of the hill there in Percy Warner Park and look, and you can see downtown Nashville. And everywhere else in Nashville, it was raining. The thunder was lightning. People were screaming and dying. It was awful. But right there in that park, it was a perfect day for a wedding. So um, I wasn't worried about that anymore. Um, and, and then I, I was worried about are the chairs in the right place? And I was worried about are the flowers where they're supposed to be? And all that was fine. I was worried about all these things that weren't going to last with us for the vast scope of our married life. And then it occurred to me, do I have the ring? My brother was responsible for the ring as he was my best man. He did not have the ring. So we called my parents and, and, and they were already pulling into the gates of the park. It was too late. So our uh, ministry secretary, uh, Betty Scusel, she said, I've overheard your plight and I have a solution, though it's not a good solution. You can use my wedding band. Now, it's it's a white gold wedding band. And I said, that's perfect. The, the ring I got for Sarah and she knows it is a white gold wedding band. That's perfect. So she says, yeah, but the problem is it's probably not going to be the right size. And I thought, well, I'll take whatever I can get. So I took the ring um, and I got up on that hill. Uh, I was sweating bullets. I was stressed out, not because I was getting married. But because I, you think crazy, irrational things on your wedding day. And I legitimately thought, I legitimately had these thoughts, though it sounds crazy, that we're going to go through all this. I'm going to put that ring on her finger. It's not going to fit. And she's going to see that I've got some other woman's ring. And she's going to leave me standing at the altar. And everyone's going to laugh at me. I really thought that. So the time came. And I put that ring on her finger. And it fit like Cinderella's slipper. A perfect fit. And I'm Southern Baptist, really, raised Southern Baptist, but I about spoke in tongues. And we got off that hill. We got into the car. We went trailing off in a limousine. We're going to go to where we're going to have the, the party and everything, reception. And I looked over her and I said, sweetheart, I love you. And she said, I love you. I said, yeah, but I'd, I'd do anything for you. She said, well, I'd do anything for you. I said, do you mean that? Do you mean you do anything for me? She said, yes. I said, that's great news because I'm going to have to have that ring back already. That's not something you want to say on your wedding day. And that's the story. But here's the moral of that story. You can worry about all of the details, the things of this life, whether you're in the right school, whether your kids go to the right school, whether you marry the right person, you get all these. And they're important things. They're really important things. But none of them matter at all if you forget the person, the very symbol of your relationship, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you put everything else, uh, if you put him on the back burner, it won't matter how good of a Christian you are in every other respect, it will all be meaningless if you don't put the Lord Jesus Christ first in your life.
All right. Well, this has been a fun discussion and uh, I appreciate that you're here and I hope that you'll uh, show up tomorrow for Chris Day and on Friday for Inspiring Philosophy. And who knows, there might even be another video in the mix, but I appreciate all of you. You guys have been awesome today. So many super chats and I don't deserve them. We don't deserve them, but I'm going to tell Mrs. Hunter about them and say this meal tonight it's provided for you by Trinity Radio, if Jonathan's okay with it. And Jonathan might not be okay with it, but I'll see you next time on Trinity, on Trinity Radio. So many kind words, so many kind words in the chat. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you, Slam RN. Thank you, Finding Truth. Thank you, Daniel Apologetics. Thank you, In Thy Word. Thank you, Qwerty. Thank you, Isaiah Braxton. Thank you, Jonathan Pritchett. <laughs> Paul Andrews. Hi. <laughs> no, seriously, thanks for showing up. No, get married, the programmer. Get married. Later, guys.